Our scripture reading this morning comes from Mark, the fourth chapter, verses 26 through 29. Hear now the word of our Lord. He also said, This is what the kingdom of God is like. A man scatters seed on the ground. Night and day, whether he sleeps or gets up, the seed sprouts and grows though he does not know how. All by itself the soil produces grain, first the stalk, then the head, then the full kernel in the head. As soon as the grain is ripe, he puts the sickle to it, because the harvest has come. This is the word of God. May it find its way into our hearts and lives this morning by the power of his Holy Spirit. Amen. Several years ago, um, Crystal and I had this, uh, this sort of weekly tradition that we would do together. Um, we'd order a large stuffed crust pizza from Pizza Hut, um, a two liter of Coke, um, some hot wings, and some breadsticks. And then we'd sit around the TV um, and we would watch The Biggest Loser. Um, <laughs> Does everyone know what The Biggest Loser is? It's this, uh, it's this reality TV competition, and uh, it, it's just like normal reality TV competitions. There's a, a house full of people. They're all competing. Um, there's like the plucky go-getter. There's uh, the, the small-town girl with dreams, and there's, uh, there's usually that loud, obnoxious woman who ain't here to make no friends, right? But all the people on The Biggest Loser are there to lose weight. Uh, These are people um, who uh, are overweight and they're competing to see who can shed the most pounds. And so they endure all kinds of uh, physical challenges, these uh, these workouts, um, uh, temptations. Uh, Temptations are always my favorite because I'm sitting there eating pizza. (laughs) I'm going, that guy should really learn to resist the carbs. Um, but then at the end of the week, every week, they have the weigh-in ceremony. And at the weigh-in ceremony, there's always a guy who steps on the scale. There's dramatic music. Everyone gasps, and then it cuts to a commercial break. And then after the commercial, you find out that the guy lost 12 pounds over the course of a week. And uh, they're all high-fiving each other. And, uh, and the judges are saying, you deserve this. You put in the work. And, uh, and the guy usually sheds a tear. I'm doing this so I can play with my kids the whole bit. And then there's the other guy. He steps on the scale. There's dramatic music. Everyone gasps. Commercial break. Only you find out after the commercial that this guy didn't lose any weight. Uh, maybe, um, maybe he even put on a pound. And all the trainers shake their heads. And there's usually a, a camera that, that, that cuts to like this night vision scene of the guy in the middle of the night eating an Oreo cookie. And all of us at home, we shake our heads too. Poor guy. Only he'd push himself a little further. 
He just didn't put in the work. And that's what the biggest loser is all about, isn't it? Putting in the work. That's the ultimate message of the biggest loser. You have a house full of people that are desperate to be transformed. They are desperate to be on the outside with with, what they sense that they are on the inside. And all that can be theirs if they're just willing to push themselves a little harder, push themselves a little further, and put in the work. That radical life change is possible. That transformation is possible. It's just around the corner. If only you will put in the work. In most reality TV, this is the message. Put in the work. It's a Cinderella story, right? The transformation you long for is possible. Bibbidi-bobbidi-boo. It can be yours if you'll just put in the work. If you're a small-town waitress, pick the right song. Hit all the right notes and that chair will turn for you and your dream can be realized. Your single father with mouths to feed, pick the right recipe with the right ingredients, execute it perfectly, and the apron can be yours. A young single woman looking for love, put on the right dress, giggle at all the right times, and the rose can be yours. The transformation you were waiting for, longing for, the person you know you are deep inside can be had if you would just put in the work. This is the message of reality TV. But it's also the message of our culture at large today. This narrative of putting in the work is used to uh, to self self help books and financial seminars and kale shakes and uh, exercise machines that look like medieval torture devices. A new you can be had if you will just put in the work. If you just have enough grit, just enough stick to itness, you too can be transformed. The problem is that it's all a mirage. It's an empty fantasy. See, reality TV is not really real. I stopped watching Biggest Loser a couple of years ago when I read an article. Um, They uh, went and interviewed all the past contestants. And they talked about the harsh conditions on the Biggest Loser ranch. How they were cut off from their families, not allowed to call home. How they were verbally abused by the trainers. How they had these eight-hour workouts every day. And the camera crews wouldn't come in until the last half hour. And show those people panting and unable to keep up after seven and a half hours of a workout. They said that behind the scenes, people were doing whatever they could to drop a pound, including starvation and bulimia. Uh, one contestant talked about how um, they were uh, shooting a promo for, for milk 
for The Biggest Loser during one of the commercial breaks and uh, how uh, she uh, took a big old glass of milk um, and as soon as the camera stopped rolling, uh, the judges made her spit it out. They talked about the permanent damage that losing so much weight so fast does to their body. Many of the women suffer from hair loss. A lot of the, uh, the contestant, contestants say that their uh, short-term memory uh, has been damaged. Their knees and backs are not what they once were. One contestant talked about how every time she climbs up and down the stairs, she hears this sound like saran wrap. And they all said there is a reason why they don't do reunion shows. Because everyone goes home and they put back on the weight. Do you think it's because they didn't work hard enough? Do you think that they didn't get the transformation they so desperately wanted, so desperately needed because they didn't work hard enough? See, it's a mirage. It's a myth that makes millionaires out of the people that sell it. Just push yourself harder, further. The transformation you long for can be yours if you will just put in the work. We know it's not true, and yet what else is there? So many of us feel like we're caught in an endless loop. So many of us feel like we're on this, this hamster wheel, and, and, and this, uh, the transformation that we want and we need is ever before us, and we're never quite able to realize it. And the world tells us we just need to work a little harder, pull ourselves up by the bootstraps, just want it a little more than the rest, and it will be yours. What else is there? There is another way, an older way, one that was taught by Jesus of Nazareth in a story having to do with seeds. See, we know many of the parables by name, right? The good Samaritan, the unmerciful servant, the prodigal son. I say these names and you exactly know the parable that I'm talking about. Uh, But this parable we read this morning has as many titles as I think there are Bible translations. I wrote down a couple. Uh, The parable of the growing seed. The parable of the patient husbandman. The parable of the unbelieving farmer. The parable of the secret beneath the earth. The parable of the ripened grain. This probably reflects the confusion about this parable. What is it about? What is Jesus trying to tell us? This parable only appears in Mark. Perhaps Matthew and Luke were equally confused about this parable. And they decided to leave it on the cutting room floor. After all, aren't there enough parables about seeds anyway? But thank God for Mark. This parable we read this morning about the farmer that plants the seed, 
about this seed that grows while the farmer's not doing anything about it. This parable is one of my favorite in the whole New Testament. But the key to understanding this parable is realizing that it is a parable of the kingdom. This is what the kingdom of God is like, Jesus says. And Jesus' crowd would have immediately understood what the kingdom of God meant. The kingdom of God meant the transformation of the world and everyone in it. Most of you, when I say kingdom of God, you probably think of a place, right? That's what we think of when we think of a kingdom. The kingdom of Spain, the magic kingdom, right? We think of a place. And when we think of the kingdom of God, we usually think of heaven, right? Our mind turns to images of of, of mansions and golden streets and pearly gates by a crystal sea. But this is not quite what Jesus is talking about. When Jesus is talking about the kingdom of God, he's talking about the reign of God, the rule of God, everything that is under God's dominion. And so it's not just heaven, it's here on earth as well. Wherever God is in charge, there is the kingdom of God. And see, Jesus' first uh, followers, the people that first heard this parable, would have understood the kingdom of God to be that time in history when God would come make everything right, when he would radically transform the world and when he would radically transform everybody in it. See, the Jewish people had been on the hamster wheel of history, up and then down, up and then down. They were slaves in Egypt. Then they were delivered. They had a kingdom, and then it was divided. They, uh, they had the word of the prophets and, 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 and the radical reforms of Josiah. And then came the exile. They returned from the exile and rebuilt the temple. Then came the Greeks. They gained their independence from the Greeks. And then came the Romans. Every time they had broken free, history had something else in store for them. And so they must have felt like they were on this endless loop. They were on the hamster wheel, always looking for that radical transformation when God would finally set everything right, the kingdom of God. And yet, it always looked to be just around the corner. So how does the kingdom of God come about? How does the kingdom of God come about? How does this this, this transformation of the world and this transformation of our lives, which we so desperately seek, come about? In the first century, there were many views, um, but probably the most common one was the one held by the Pharisees. They believed that when all of Israel kept the law, 
then the Messiah would come and the kingdom of God would be brought about when all of Israel kept the law. Remember, there was a, there's the Ten Commandments on Mount Sinai, but there's also 613 laws in the Torah. And the belief was if we could just keep all of those, if we could all just be holy enough that the kingdom of God would come. There was a rabbinical saying that if all Israel had kept the first Sabbath, no nation or tongue would have ever ruled over her. And if all Israel would keep but two Sabbaths in a row, she would be redeemed today. See, it's all about putting in the work. If you can just be holy enough, if, if, you, if, if God can just favor your life enough because you're doing all the right things, then the spiritual transformation you long for can be yours. There are probably Pharisees in the church today that preach similar personal holiness plans that will put you in God's good graces and win you the spiritual transformation you so desperately long for. But no amount of putting in the work seems to work. We try and we try and we try and we find ourselves on that same spiritual hamster wheel. Enter Jesus. He's got a different way, a better way. Let's look closely at this parable together and I think you'll love it as much as I do. If you want to look at it uh, uh, in your Bible, um, Mark 4, um, 26. So Jesus says, this is what the kingdom of God is like. Remember, that's what we've been talking about. This inner transformation, this transformation of the world. This is what it's like. A man scatters seed on the ground. Now, um, the Greek here doesn't use the word for farmer, doesn't use the word for sower. uses the word for human being, anthropos. Right away, we're being clued in. This is the human activity, right? This is what human beings do to bring about the kingdom of God. He scatters seed, seed on the ground. Then, night and day, whether he, gets, whether he sleeps or gets up, the seed sprouts and grows. See? The human being has planted the seed... And then a whole bunch of stuff starts happening with Algin. Whether he's waking or sleeping, um, whether he's paying attention to it or not, this seed is sprouting and growing. Though he does not know how, it says, though he does not know how. See, most of us understand how seeds grow, right? Uh, we we took that, that class in elementary school and they taught us the life cycle of the seed but in the ancient world it was very much a mystery you put the seed in the ground and then you prayed and then it was up to god or the gods depending on your religious affiliation to make the seed grow see planting is what people do and the growth 
is what God does. Right? So we've got human activity and then we've got God's activity. The human activity, I plant the seed, God does everything else. Then it says, verse 28, all by itself. The, uh, the, the Greek word says automatically, automatically, all by itself, the soil produces grain. First the stalk, then the head, then the full kernel of grain, right? So, so all of this is happening automatically, whether the farmer does anything or not. All he's done is plant the seed. God's making it grow, and then it sprouts from the ground, and it automatically uh, continues to grow. It becomes a stalk, then a head, and then it produces grain. And then 29 says, as soon as the grain is ripe, it doesn't even use the word for ripe. It literally says, as soon as the grain hands itself over. Right? The grain hands itself over. So it's automatically grown, right? It's, uh, it, 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 you don't even have to do anything. This grain is handing itself over to you. All you have done is plant the seed. You following me? Right? There's God's activity and there's human activity. And the human activity is this. And God's activity is everything else. And then, as soon as the grain is ripe, he puts the sickle to it because the harvest has come. And harvest is always in the Bible. Anytime you read about harvest, it's about judgment. It's about the final judgment, right? So from the moment the first seed is planted until the final judgment, God does everything in between. From the moment we accept Christ, the seed is planted to the moment we stand before the throne of the judgment, God is doing everything. We need only submit. How different is that than what the world tells us? How different is that? It's not about you and I putting in the work. It's about the work that is done on our behalf. God put in the work. Jesus put in the work when he died on the cross for the forgiveness of all our sin. The rest is given freely. We need only accept it. It's a free gift. And no, no amount of putting in the work can earn it. It just happens automatically. Grace just hands itself over. We need only accept it. It doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter what you've done or what you feel like you haven't done. The work is done on your behalf. And so, we come to this table. And one of the symbols we have at the communion table is bread. And bread is a symbol to us of grace. Think of everything we've talked about this year. Think of the Hebrew children in the wilderness. They're grumbling. They need to be fed. And, uh, and, and, and Moses is angry with their grumbling. But what does God do? 
He rains down bread from heaven, whether they deserve it or not. It's grace. We talked about Ruth and Naomi, how they needed desperately for someone to do for them what they could not do for themselves. Where did they find that grace? In the grain fields, on the threshing room floor, in a place called Bethlehem, literally the house of bread. We celebrated the birth of Jesus, the gift of the bread of life there in the house of bread for all of us. Bread is a symbol to us of God's grace, of this automatic grain, of this seed. To make this bread, a seed was planted. God did the rest, and then it was baked into bread. It's a symbol to us of grace. We don't put in the work. Jesus puts in the work. And of course, the bread is a symbol to us of the body of Christ, of the one who broke himself so that we could be made whole, who died so that we could live transformed lives. See, Jesus puts in the work. So many of us think of our spiritual Christian lives like we think of that biggest loser, Jim. We've just got to go in there and for eight hours a day we've got to push ourselves and push ourselves and push ourselves. And maybe if uh, we read enough scripture, maybe if we pray all the right prayers, we, we've got, we've got the, the Pharisees uh, in, in their gym shorts yelling at us while we push on that treadmill. And maybe if we just press on far enough, work hard enough, Jesus will, will take note of us and give us the transformation that we long for. But the Christian life is not a gym. It's a table. It's a table where the transformation we long for is offered to us freely. We need only sit down, loosen our belts, and indulge. We need only invite that seed into our heart. And God does the rest. Jesus has set this table. Jesus has prepared this meal. Jesus has offered himself to all of us here. He has put in the work. We need only come. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.